You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today I'm going to tell the story of Dom Enrique of Portugal, more commonly known to history as Henry the Navigator. Henry, a Portuguese prince, is one of the most important individuals in the Age of Discovery, as the work he began in the 15th century would be critical to the expansion of European exploration in the Atlantic and Africa. So, a few quick notes to start. First, I want to let everyone know that I will be hosting a session at this year's Intelligence Speech Conference on Saturday, April 24th. This online conference will feature eight hours of presentations from up to 40 different content creators from the worlds of podcasting, YouTube, and media. The cost is $30, but if you sign up by March 31st, you can save $10 by inputting the code GOLDEN. That's simply the word GOLDEN, G-O-L-D-E-N. I will likely be participating in a group panel as well as leading one of the presentations. This year's theme is Escape, and I'll be talking about exploration stories where the explorers were forced to do extraordinary things to get out of dire situations. You can learn more and buy tickets at www.intelligencespeechconference.com. Second note, I want to remind everyone that Explorers has active Facebook and Twitter pages. I post explorer-related stories and other historical tidbits that I find of interest. Just look us up. On Twitter, our handle is at ExplorersPod, and on Facebook, the URL is Facebook.com slash ExplorersPod. These are great ways to interact with me in the show. You can tell me when you like stuff, or throw digital rocks at me if that helps. Whatever works. Note number three. Regarding today's show, it's probably not a bad thing to take a look at a map of all the things we are going to talk about today. Thus, I have put one on our website, ExplorersPodcast.com. You can also look in the show notes, and I put a link to it as well. So that is it for notes. Let us talk about Henry the Navigator. So we will start today's show with a few comments about our subject. First, I will be referring to Henry as Henry, not Enrique, just because it's way, way easier for me. Second, this is not a full-scale biography of Henry. The man did all sorts of things in his lifetime. He was deeply involved in the religious and military and political affairs of Portugal for almost half a century. But what I will focus on is his role in exploration. It doesn't mean we won't talk about all that other stuff, because it is important, just that we won't go super in-depth on those topics. Third, Henry is unique as he is not, despite his navigator moniker, a sailor of any type. He was a soldier and a nobleman, but he never was an explorer or mariner. What he was, was a supporter and promoter of naval innovations, as well as exploration and expansion in the Atlantic and Africa. It is this support that will make him critical to the Age of Discovery, which really starts with Henry. 
As a side note, this really makes Henry the first non-explorer that we have covered in this show. Fourth, I want you to know up front that history has greatly distorted the life of Henry. Much of what we know about him is through the writings of a Portuguese archivist and chronicler, Gomesien Zorada. Zorada lived at the time of Henry, but was writing to please the prince in the royal court. This means he glosses over, or ignores, the bad stuff, and highlights and distorts the good stuff, and he makes up a lot of stuff. In the eyes of Zorada, Henry is a saint, scholar, scientist, warrior, and visionary, all rolled up into one. An example of this is he says that when Henry was born, the prince was clutching an image of a cross. And that gives you the idea of the flattery that Zorada was required to assign to Henry. Because of this thing, it is really hard to trust the man. However, we do rely heavily on him for information on Henry, even if we know things are suspect, since there's not much else to draw upon. All this means that we have to take what we know about Henry with a dose of skepticism. All of that said, let's talk about the life of Prince Henry the Navigator. Henry was born on March 4th, 1394, probably in Porto, Portugal. He was of the House of Aviz. He was the fourth son of Portugal's monarch, King John I, and Queen Philippa, the sister of King Henry IV of England. One of Henry's older brothers died in infancy, as did a sister, but two elder brothers would survive, that being Duarte, or Edward, who was heir to the throne, as well as Philip. Henry also had two younger brothers and a younger sister. Henry was born into a pretty volatile world, and I want to review this world for a moment, just so you understand where all this is coming from. The Iberian Peninsula, which is modern-day Spain and Portugal, was, circa 1400, dominated by five kingdoms. There was Castile, Aragon, Navarre, and Portugal, which were all heavily Catholic. And then there was Granada in the south, which was controlled by the Moors, meaning it was Muslim. The process of expelling the Moors from Europe was called the Reconquista, the Reconquest. Now, the Portuguese had fought for centuries to expel the Moors, and eventually would do so. This would leave the Moors in Granada, which bordered only Castile. And by the late 1300s, it was Castile that emerged as the big power on the peninsula. In addition to fighting the Moors in Granada, they would occasionally turn their attention to their smaller and weaker neighbor to the west, Portugal. In 1385, the Portuguese, under John of Aviz, would defeat the Castilians at the Battle of Arju Baratu, making the House of Aviz the ruling house of Portugal. This meant that Portugal was free of Castile and the Moors. However, Portugal was a poor land and not very populous, and blocked by Castile from the rest of Europe. This would be the world that Henry was born into. Now, not much is known about the younger years of the prince. We know that he was trained as a knight, meaning he would have been well-educated, learning to read and write. He would have studied philosophy and mathematics alongside military tactics. He was known to enjoy hunting and lavish parties and celebrations, all the things you would expect of a young noble. Now, we do know that Henry took an early interest in astrology as well as religion, Regarding astrology, many people at this time believed that the stars held the answers to their fates, and Henry embraced this, believing that he was destined for great things. This belief, and his royal position, meant he often operated with a brash confidence, or perhaps arrogance is a better term. Regarding religion, this is very, very serious stuff to Henry, as well as most people of the era. We talked earlier about the Moors, and even though the Moors and Islam were no longer a part of Portugal or a major threat, they were a big villain in the eyes of many people, including Henry. Many Portuguese nobles had a crusading zeal in them, a desire to strike at Islamic institutions and nations. This was, to some, revenge for the wrongs inflicted on Portugal in the past. For others, it was their own desire to spread the word of Christ. Throughout his life, Henry will never abandon this religious bent. 
1411, King John would create areas for his three eldest sons to have dominion over within Portugal. For Henry, this was the region of north-central Portugal. As for Henry, he would burst on the international scene in 1215 with the Portuguese attempt to capture the Moroccan city of Ceuta. Let's talk about this for a minute. In 1215, King John was 30 years into his reign. His sons, and many other young Portuguese nobles, were eager to make their mark in the world. There was no war with Castile going on, and thus there was a generation of young men essentially looking to earn their spurs. Henry was particularly excited to make his mark. He was 21 years old, and he felt that it was his duty as a nobleman and a Christian to expel the Moors not just from the Iberian Peninsula, but North Africa. Thus, Henry was a big proponent of launching the attack on the Islamic Sultanate of Morocco. This would do several things. First, it would disrupt Moorish pirates that operated out of the region and plague Portuguese shipping and raided the Portuguese coast. Second, it would threaten the flourishing gold and slave trade of North Africa, which was a market that Portugal could potentially get a cut of. Third, there was money to be had from sacking cities and capturing and ransoming important people. Fourth, it would raise the profile and bring prestige to the nation. The idea was to prove to the world that Portugal was a major power. And finally, it would put into action the nationalistic and religious zeal that many in Portugal had bottled up. All of these things were on Henry's mind when he advocated for the Portuguese offensive. Now, not everyone agreed with this move. Money was short in Portugal, and the campaign would be a burden for people from all walks of life. And foreign military campaigns were often fraught with unknown perils. No one wanted to get bogged down in an endless war, or have the entire affair thrown into disarray by wild cards such as weather or disease. Despite these issues, the campaign would move ahead, with Henry as one of the biggest cheerleaders for the venture. For the 1415 Moroccan campaign, the Portuguese would put together one of the greatest armies in their nation's history. There would be 200 ships and between 20,000 and 45,000 men, depending on which source you read. No matter, this was immense and costly for Portugal, which was not a big nation. Now, the campaign was almost scuttled before it even began, when Queen Philippa would fall ill and die. Some called it a bad omen, but Henry was undeterred. He later said that his mother, on her deathbed, had urged him not to call off the attack, and thus the expedition moved forward. The fleet, led by the king, would finally depart in late July of 1415 and take more than two weeks to enter the Strait of Gibraltar. The plotting fleet is something Henry would never forget. The longer the army was aboard ship, the greater chance there was of an outbreak of disease. And the longer the ships inched their way toward their destination, the greater chance a storm could scatter them, or worse, sink them. This experience no doubt gnawed at the prince, who would wonder how such things could be done better. He would eye up the lighter, nimbler Arab fishing vessels with their multiple masts and unique latine sails, and tuck away in his mind their designs and capabilities, but that will be for later. The destination of the Portuguese armada was the fortress of Ceuta, which is basically opposite Gibraltar, but on the African side of the Mediterranean. The Portuguese would eventually land and make an assault on the city on August 21, 1415. The result was a stunning success, as Ceuta would fall in less than a day. The Portuguese lost, and I'm not kidding, eight guys in the fighting. Henry would be lauded for his bravery in the attack. The capture of Ceuta in such a swift fashion was a tremendous victory for the Portuguese. There was no protracted siege, no heavy losses. It made all of Europe sit up and take notice of Portugal and the daring young prince. For his part in the attack, Henry, along with his brothers, were knighted, and Henry was given the title of Duke of Vizio, the first time the title Duke had been granted to a Portuguese nobleman. The motto Henry adopted was, a hunger to perform worthy deeds, which was pretty appropriate for the ambitious young prince. 
Now, the capture of Ceuta, while spectacular, was not really that big of a deal. The port city was important, and it had valuable stuff, but it was not that big, or that strategic, or that valuable. Many of the city's important people had fled before the attack, taking with them their valuables, and there was no hoard of gold to be found. The Portuguese did make some money from it all, as ransoming prisoners was always good business, but there was no major financial windfall. Anyhow, King John now had to make a choice what to do with the city. Well, men like Henry argued to keep it. This was the beginning of an empire. The fortress would be a place where the Portuguese could expand its fight against Islam, and perhaps take over the region's lucrative gold and slave trade operations. Others argued that the best thing to do was sack the city, take prisoners, and leave. Otherwise, you would need a garrison of thousands just to hold it. That would be very costly, especially for a small nation such as Portugal. In the end, Henry would win over his father to the first option, keeping the city. In all honesty, it was not a good decision. The city would be a heavy drain on the resources of Portugal, which did not have many to begin with. Two to three thousand men would have to be stationed there, or it would simply be retaken by the Moors. As for trade, the Moors simply redirected the caravan routes to other cities, such as Tangier. In the end, Ceuta would be a Portuguese outpost for decades, but more of a thorn than an asset. No matter, Prince Henry was thrilled by the outcome. He had proven his bravery in combat. He had defeated the hated Muslims, and his star was shining brightly in Portugal and all of Europe. If he had any doubts about himself, or the stars that he said had faded him for greatness, those doubts would have been erased. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So in the coming years, Prince Henry would become an administrator, a politician, a crusading zealot, and an entrepreneur. If that sounds a bit odd for a 15th century nobleman, it demonstrates his grand ambition, plus his great curiosity. I think the one thing about Henry that really sticks out to me is that the guy never missed out on an opportunity. It seems that he was a tireless guy with a broad range of interests, and he was never afraid to dive into new ventures or test out new ideas or theories and he certainly wasn't shy about doing all these things. He was a high-profile guy, always wanted to be out in front, always wanted to be the hero. He's the kind of person that would have live-tweeted his attack on Ceuta. So, after Ceuta, there are a variety of events and moments that would shape Prince Henry over the next decade or so. However, we don't always know the exact dates of them or all the details, and some of these will take place over many years. So, what I'm going to do today is detail these items related to Henry. Know that a lot of what we are going to discuss will cover the years 1450 to about 1430-ish. First item, Islam. Henry would have loved nothing more than to go and attack the Moors after his victory in Ceuta. He even angled at getting involved in working with Castile to conquer Granada, but the Castilians were having none of that. Granada was their sphere of influence, and Henry was not welcome. If not Granada, then Henry would have loved to have gone and campaigned against the Moors in Africa, but here he was reined in by his father. Portugal just did not have the resources for such a conflict. That would mean Henry would have to turn his gaze elsewhere, 
and that would be the exploration of the West African coast. But for that, Henry needed money and men in ships. And that leads us to our second item I want to cover, and that is Henry being named Grand Master of the Military Order of Christ, which is a pretty hefty title, and rightfully so. The Military Order of Christ was the Portuguese successor to the Knights Templar, a military and religious entity. The Templars had been suppressed by Pope Clement V in 1312. This new order had inherited the assets of the Templars and was thus rich and influential. Well, with the help of his father, King John, Henry would be named Grand Master of the Order in 1320 at the age of 26. This would do two things. First, it would be a perfect outlet for Henry's anti-Islamic passions. And second, the order would provide Henry with a steady stream of income that he could channel into his overseas endeavors, which included wars in North Africa and the exploration of the Atlantic. Henry would retain this prestigious position for his entire life, and the order would be a backstop for him, providing him with financial, political, and military cover for everything that he did. So that gets us to our next topic, and that was Henry's general interest and encouragement of exploration. I should note that Portugal was a natural maritime nation. I mean, just look at a map. It's blocked by Spain, or Castile at the time, to the north and east, and then there's the ocean everywhere else. This meant Portugal was hemmed in, with the sea the only place to go, unless, of course, you wanted to get in war with Castile, which was not wise, as Castile had more money and resources and people. With long rivers that flowed to the Atlantic, plus a lot of coastline, fishing and trade were critical industries in Portugal. So, to take advantage of Portugal's natural strengths, Henry turned his gaze to Africa, and not just Morocco in North Africa, but to the lands beyond the Great Sahara Desert because it is there that the Moors obtained gold, ivory, and slaves, all of which were shipped overland across the Sahara in caravans. Henry figured that if he could get to those regions by ship, he could do an end run around the land-based trade routes. For Henry, this was perfect, poke Islam in the eye and make money in the process. These are two subjects that will dominate Henry's world for the rest of his life. To this end, Henry would send out his agents to search out and procure maps and charts detailing the areas of Africa and the Atlantic. These maps usually included mysterious islands, often just the conceit of the mapmaker, but things that intrigued the young prince. By the way, Henry was keenly interested in cartography and geography, and was always wondering what was beyond the edges of the maps of the day. So in the late 1410s, the prince would get things going by sending ships down the African coast. By around 1430, he would finance more than a dozen expeditions, usually of no more than one or two ships. These ships would have been simple cargo-type vessels, usually with a single mast and a fixed square sail. These ships were fragile, and they could easily be overwhelmed by strong winds and ocean currents. Now, sailing down the West African coast presented several obstacles. First, the furthest known advance down the coast by a European ship was to Cape Bojador, a headland on the coast of what is today Western Sahara. The Cape is roughly 850 miles, or 1,350 kilometers, down the coast of West Africa. Legend said that the ocean beyond the Cape was teeming with dangers. The waters were so hot they boiled, and terrible sea monsters would swallow ships whole. It was called the Dark Sea, and those who tried to sail past the Cape did not return. I should stress that there are many reports of ships going past the Cape. Hanno the Navigator, a Carthaginian, may have done so 2,000 years earlier. But to the men of Henry's era, these were just stories and legends. There was nothing reliable. A second issue was the African coast itself. Remember, the Sahara Desert is here, and a ship sailing down the coast of Africa is going to quickly be greeted by the desert on one side and the ocean on the other. 
Food and water were scarce, and the natives who did live there were wary, if not outright hostile, to newcomers. The western edge of the Sahara Desert stretches down the Atlantic coast for more than 1,200 miles, or 2,000 kilometers. This means a ship heading south was heading into a wasteland. Now, there was another challenge any ship would have to face on a journey south, and that was the region's currents and winds. They flowed south down the coast, but not back north. Traveling north was a challenge for any ship. The current that takes a vessel down the African coast is called the Canary Current, and it refers to the Canary Islands, and that takes us to another subject I want to discuss. Around Cape Bojador, the currents do continue south, but they also take you west into the Atlantic. There you will find the Canary Islands. The Canaries consist of eight main islands and are about 100 kilometers or 60 miles west of Cape Bojador and about 660 miles or 1,065 kilometers southwest of Portugal. The Canaries were occupied by indigenous people in Henry's time, and it was Castile that had claimed and conquered several of the islands by the early 1400s. But Henry desperately wanted to get his hands on them. He saw the Canaries as a perfect base for exploring to the south, and he viewed getting the islands as a way to expand the prestige and influence of Portugal. He was, in all honesty, obsessed with them, and it's an obsession that he will never get over. In 1424, Henry would make a play for the Canaries by sending a force of several thousand men to the islands, the idea to set up camp on one or more of the islands that the Spanish had not yet occupied. The details of this campaign are very scarce, so it is often ignored in history books. But things didn't go well for the Portuguese. The indigenous people fought back, and who knows what other unexpected obstacles were thrown in the paths of the invaders. Disease, illness, malnutrition, weather, all these things likely would have been issued for the Portuguese, as trying to sustain a large force on a small island was no simple thing. In the end, they would have to withdraw. Now, with all that said about Henry, I want to discuss a pair of discoveries that would come about due to his efforts to further explore the African coast. In 1418, two captains, Joao Gonçalves Zarco and Tristal Taz Vachera, in the service of Henry, were blown off course in a storm and pushed out into the Atlantic and far north of the Canaries. There, they came upon an uninhabited island, naming it Porto Santo. This was one of the islands of the Madeira Archipelago, a collection of islands about 400 kilometers, or 250 miles, north of the Canaries. There are three main islands in the archipelago, Madeira, Porto Santo, and De Certas, with Madeira being the main island. All were uninhabited. I want to note that the existence of Madeira was already known in some quarters, but its exact location had not been specifically pinpointed until Henry's captains had reached the islands. Madeira would prove to be the first of Henry's great discoveries. And again, I say Henry's discoveries, but let's be clear, he was not the one who found them. I mean, he will never even go to the islands, but it was through his efforts that they were discovered. Now, the islands were not located in such a way that they could help with Henry's desire to further explore down the African coast, but we can't forget that Henry was not the kind of man to pass up an opportunity. Thus, when Henry's captains reported back to him, he put into motion plans for a settlement. The result would bring colonists to Madeira in 1420 or 1425, the exact year is debatable. It would take a little time, but Madeira would prove to be a financial boon to Portugal. The island had thick, old-growth timber, perfect for making ships. In fact, the word Madeira means wood in Portuguese. Thus, the timber from Madeira would help build the Portuguese ships that would sail throughout the world for the next century. But beyond timber, there was another valuable commodity that the islands would provide, and that's sugar. Madeira would prove to be an outstanding place to grow sugarcane, and by 1500, more sugar was produced on Madeira than anywhere else in the world. 
As you can imagine, that meant a lot of money. By the way, sugar production would wane in the 1600s as it was overtaken by production in the Americas. After sugar production diminished, the island would become a major producer of wine, and Madeira wines are still made to this day. And while the island was not a major player in the exploration of the African continent, it will become a regular port of call for ships crossing the Atlantic to the New World, but that is another 70 to 80 years in the future. Final note about the Madeira Islands. Christopher Columbus's wife, Felipa Moniz Perestrello, was a Portuguese noblewoman born on Porto Santo. So, after the discovery of the Madeira Islands, the next big thing for Henry would be the discovery of the Azores, an archipelago of nine islands about 1,400 kilometers, or 870 miles, directly west of Portugal. That means these islands won't have any effect on the exploration of Africa, or Henry's goal of getting around the Saharan caravan routes. But this really expands the knowledge of the world to the west, far out into the Atlantic. Like the Madeira Islands, the Azores were technically a new discovery, but in reality there had been reports of their existence going back more than a thousand years. Some speculate that the Azores were where the Irish monk St. Brendan visited on his voyage. No matter, the islands would be found, again, by one of Henry's mariners, a man named Diego de Silva. Henry, again, not wanting to miss out on expanding Portuguese influence, would begin to organize the settlement of the island, with colonists arriving a few years later. The Azores would not really have any impact on Henry's explorations in his lifetime, but they would, just like Madeira, be a very important port of call once the New World was opened up in 1492. Now, I want to remind you that Henry had not necessarily been looking for faraway Atlantic islands to settle, but when they were found, he moved to occupy them. Remember, he was loath to pass up any opportunity that presented itself. Now, these two discoveries will be major ones for Henry, but his next moves will be far more impactful and that will be pushing further south, past Cape Bojador, and down the African coast. But that story will be for next time. Now, before we wrap today, I do want to talk about the work done by Henry and the mariners of Portugal at this time. In these early years of exploration, the captains and sailors of Portugal were gaining invaluable experience. No European nation was pushing into the unknown seas like the Portuguese. By extension, they were learning and innovating. Slowly but surely, they built better ships, they came to understand the currents and winds of the Atlantic. They mapped the coastlines. They knew where to find food and water. They were becoming the finest mariners in Europe. Now, I do want to dispel a common myth about Henry. Legend says that Henry, ever the wise and visionary leader, established a great school and observatory for navigators and cartographers in Sagres, a village on the southwest tip of Portugal. While this legend was just a legend, there is no evidence of any school of maritime studies and no observatory. However, it doesn't mean that there aren't nuggets of truth to the stories. Henry was always fascinated by maps and geography, and he was known to employ and support mapmakers and cartographers. He actively engaged the captains who sailed for him. The likely truth is that Henry had in his service people in the maritime industry, cartographers, mapmakers, navigators, pilots, captains, and so forth. He understood the value these people had, and he kept good ones in his orbit. Also, the prince would donate some buildings in Lisbon that were dedicated to teaching. This included grammar, logic, rhetoric, mathematics, music, and astronomy. These buildings would later become part of the University of Lisbon. So when you take it all together, you can see how some may have come to believe that Henry had created some great maritime school. No matter, it is all important stuff, and it will lead to bigger things for Henry and Portugal. So this is where I'm going to wrap up today's episode. I think the big takeaway is you can see the beginning of Portugal's maritime empire, and the dawn of the Age of Discovery. 
and none of that would have been possible without the ambition and interest of Prince Henry. So next time, we will keep moving forward with the events of Henry's life. There will be a disastrous campaign against the Moors, some major maritime innovations, exploration past Cape Bojador and beyond, and lots, lots more. I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our story thus far. Please take care, and I hope you come back for part two in our story of Prince Henry the Navigator. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.